Good morning. This morning, I'd like to take up the subject that we took up several weeks ago, and that is looking at God. And particularly this morning, we're going to look at the attributes of God, characteristics of God, and what is God like. It's an amazing thing when we get into the scriptures and we look at how big God is, how amazing he is, how we have an infinite God, a limitless God, and yet with our finite minds, we're trying to dip into the word of God to try to understand God. Words bow under the pressure and the weight of the awesomeness and greatness of God. That To put God into human terminology and words is an act that only God can do. And the mere fact that we can even contemplate God and understand God is because God has revealed himself to us. God's an amazing God. And the Bible we have before us is an amazing source of information about who God is that only God can really reveal it to us. God had to bring this Bible together. Man couldn't have done it. And God, in our greatest minds, can never think up how great God is. So we're limited. We would always find error. We'd always find fault. We'd always find um, issues. But with God, there's no issues. He's perfect in all his ways. Last time I spoke, we talked about how God is amazing in his creation, how big he is, that he's the God of not only the telescope and the vast uh, space that's out there in the universe, but he's also the God of the microscope. And you can look under the microscope to see the, the definition and the intricate design that he has done. And within our own bodies, you can look at it, within creation and how he's brought all of creation together because he's perfect in all his ways. But this morning, we're going to go a step further. And not only look at the, the vastness of God, but look at his actually attributes and what he has revealed to himself in the scriptures. Turn over to Isaiah 40. I, I, in this message, as I prepared for it, I've never been so lacking in understanding of who God is and amazement. When you start looking at the attributes of God, you really see the distance between man and God and how perfect he is. And my head just hurts. Each attribute, you take it and you start rolling with it and, and putting scripture to it and trying to get your, your, your mind around it and understand that you're only getting a, a tiny percent, a tiny portion of who God is. I gave the analogy that Bill McDonald gave that uh, I'm trying to understand God and how big he is in his greatness is that if we were in the ocean and you go down, you take a bucket full of ocean water and walk away. That's about how much our minds can take up of God. Yet the ocean keeps flowing, doesn't even make a dent in it, doesn't even begin to comprehend the vastness and the greatness of who God is. But God is great. And as our brother Bill McDonough also stated, the greatest th thought that can ever enter the mind of man is the contemplation of God. And God's given us the ability, ability to understand him. To take it in, but not in its fullest. 
We're going to be out through all of eternity, amazed with God and how great he is. Let's read. We're going to read uh, verse uh, 12 and go on and just listen to the words that describes God before we get into the attributes, just to, to hear the greatness of who he is and how big he is and how wonderful. Isaiah 40, chapter uh, verse 12, we'll start with. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Now, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor is his beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and are worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith, goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing, and he makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall they stock their root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stumble. To whom, then, will you liken me? Or to whom shall I equal? I shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by numbers. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isn't that an amazing description and to begin to give us an understanding of how big and vast our God is. Each one of these little things here we can look into and see how great our God is. I've come up with approximately 14 different attributes of God. And understand, when you get into this, I tell you, I, all the different theologians and Bible teachers, and they write and they begin with the attributes of God, and some classify this as an attribute, and not this, because this comes out of that attribute, and they begin to um, try to contemplate who God is and place it in, into a category that we can understand. 
For illustration, God is merciful. God is grace. And I put that attribute under God is good. And out of his goodness flows mercy, grace, kindness, long-suffering, compassion. But each one of those can stand on its own as an attribute. You see, an attribute is something that describes somebody. It tells you who that person is. Attributes are qualities inherent to that subject. They identify, they distinguish. It allows us to analyze that subject so that we can understand them more fully. If you were to remove one attribute away from that characteristic of that person, and they would cease to be that, then that would remove who they actually are. And that's the thing with the attributes of God, is that these are who he is. God is not just loving, but God is love. God does not just act righteously, but God is righteous. And it's the very nature that if you took away one attribute of God, you would cease to have the God that exists. The attributes teach us and reveal to us who God is. And God has gone to tremendous, tremendous lengths to reveal to us who he is. Tremendous lengths. You see, you can't just put a, a, a graved image over here. You can't just paint this picture and say, this is God, because God is too big. But God has given us one person that we can understand who God is, and that is Jesus Christ, his son. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Every one of these attributes you can trace, and as you look into it, you begin to see the attributes of God, and not only in, in the vast part of, of who God is, but you can take them and trace them all the way down to Lord Jesus Christ and attribute them to him. Maybe this is something you can do over lunch on the potluck at your table to take up an attribute of God. Apply it. Meditate on it. Begin to think about it. Let your mind go and see how great and awesome God is. Break it down, how God has revealed himself, and then apply it to how he specifically uses those attributes to bless us and to relate with us and how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills each and every attribute. Just because there's an attribute of God, it doesn't mean that God has to use that attribute to its fullest at all times. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I really don't know, but uh, what it means is God's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. Does that mean he has to be everywhere at once? Lord Jesus possessed all the fullness of God. Now some would say he laid aside his attributes when he took on flesh and blood, but that's not true at all. He laid aside his glory. But the Lord Jesus possessed full attributes of God, including omnipresence, including omniscience and where he knows all things. But at times he relinquishes it to the Father and says, only the Father knows. Does he have to fully imply every attribute at all times? The answer is no. Is there a place where God is not at? Could you say yes or no? God's omnipresence. And we'll say stuff when we look at the attributes of God. Is that God is all-powerful and that he, he's, he, he can be everywhere. But then we turn around and it's almost like it's double talk. And we say, well, no, God can't sin. God cannot cease to love humanity. 
The very natures of God limits and bounds God of who he is and who he has revealed it to us. But God is not limited in that because God is God and everything that's not of God is not good. See how this stuff hurts your brain? God's not in the lake of fire. So if you say God's omnipresence, is he there? Could he be there? Yes, but what does it say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? That those that do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ are cast away from him into everlasting punishment from the presence of God. One of the worst parts about hell, the lake of fire, the judgment, is that it's absence from the presence of God. So you see, within the attributes of God, it doesn't mean that he has to do everything to the fullest degree in all the attributes. He chooses according to his will, and this is the sovereignty of God and that he's allowed to do this. But within the attributes of God, they all work together in perfect harmony. They're interwoven. When we have an issue with God and his doctrines and with an attribute of God, the issue is not with God, it's with us and our minds, that we cannot fully contemplate contemplate or comprehend God in all of his actions and his decisions in which he makes. Not one attribute supersedes the other attribute. They all work together perfectly. So you have the same God of love, of grace, of mercy, and you also have the same God of justice, of righteousness, of holiness. And within all of these, they're inner woven together so that they work one with another. And God never lays aside his justice in order to justify a sinner. To say the God that we worship and that we know justifies the sinner within fulfilling his righteousness and his holiness and then applies the grace. And if you notice every time our blessings and the grace of God that comes is through the Lord Jesus Christ because this is the channel of blessings that flow in which God just doesn't arbitrarily take a sinner and say, you're saved, your sins are forgiven of you. He can't do that. God is the just and the justifier, the one that has faith in Jesus Christ. But this is the beauty of propitiation and that Jesus died on the cross, that he satisfied the righteous requirements of God so that his righteous attributes, his just attributes are satisfied. Therefore, he goes to his love and he goes to his mercy and he goes to his grace and can justify the sinner on the grounds of the work that is done on the cross. Charles Ryrie, Ryrie writes, While God may display one quality or another at any given time, no quality is independent of or preeminent over the others. Whenever God displays his wrath, he is still love. Whenever he shows his love, he does not abandon his holiness. That's good. Now, the working of all this out, and as we go through the scriptures, this is where the student has to sit here and really work through the word of God. Because what ends up happening, if we overemphasize one attribute over the other, what do we end up with? Heresy. False teaching. Majority of the false teaching in the church, our discrepancies we get, can really almost be tra traced back to a, a misunderstanding of who God is and his attributes in which he has revealed to us. For illustration of this, in, in, in an example of this is one thing to let me throw out real quick before, is that 
If you take the righteousness of God and you take the grace of God, it's not as simply coming to the middle, and as long as we have 50% of this attribute, 50% of this attribute, that it all works together. It's, it's not that, that simple. They all, they, they all interweave together, and they work together very finely. Um, if you take the righteousness of God and uh, the holiness of God against the grace and the mercy of God, they have to work together. It's not that I can turn around and forsake some sin, and this sin's okay as long as I, as long as I keep this much amount of righteousness, and it's this balance of a scale. This is not the way in which God works. God works within his attributes in a very simplistic way that we just can't comprehend. A second, he can take all of his attributes and make a decision that works out his his grace, his mercy, his love, his righteousness, his holiness, and everything, never violating one attribute. As Christians, we begin to take on, and as we meditate and look at God, we begin to take on these attributes. But going back to uh, a wrong understanding of God's attributes, or an overemphasis of, of one attribute over the other, ends us on with trouble. Now let me read what Lewis Perry Chafer writes. The attributes of God form an interwoven and independent communion of facts and forces which harmonize in the person of God. An omission or slightly of any of these or any disproportionate emphasis upon any one of them cannot but lead to fundamental error of immeasurable magnitude. A mighty task is committed to the student of theology to discover these attributes and exhibit them according to truth. So what does that mean? One of the, the, the things that's been spoken on the past uh, several weeks is it's been brought up is the doctrine of election in Calvinism. Now, if you take Calvinism to its uh, teaching, what do you end up with? An overemphasis of the sovereignty of God. A lack of understanding of the justice of God. A misinterpretation of the scripture to where they begin to redefine world doesn't mean world. And God doesn't love every sinner. He only loves the elect. And you begin to redefine all these things because you've taken one attribute, overemphasized it at the expense of all the other ones, and God in his relationship to man and has not allowed God to communicate with us in a proper way. And there's many doctrines that enter in to the church and that uh, we begin to hold because men that have, godly men, men that I know and respect have taken uh, these teachings and intertwined them within good teachings. Another attribute of God or overemphasis is on grace and we have something that's going on that people believe this abundant grace that you can go out and live any way that you want to. Have at it. You're saved. You're no longer under law. You can live however you want to live. The grace of God. Don't judge the other sinner. Don't judge the other Christians. Just let grace reign within the church. Overemphasis of grace ends up in trouble. They all work together. It's amazing when you watch and you read through the scriptures and just dealing with Egypt and Pharaoh and Moses 
and the workings of God and how he loved Pharaoh. He wanted to save Pharaoh. That the judgment of God is coming. That the extension to reach out to Pharaoh is always there and Pharaoh hardens his heart towards God. You can say that God was just in Egypt dealing with them. You can say that he was loving. You can say that he was merciful. All his attributes at play in dealing with them. And you find throughout the scripture, we have the same God in the Old Testament as the New Testament. Don't get caught up in saying you have this God of law in the Old Testament and he was this, this strict old man that, that sat up in the clouds and just cast down judgment on everybody and there was no grace or mercy. God was just as loving in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And he extended mercy and grace and, and compassion and everything else in the Old Testament as he did in the New Testament. But what you get into the New Testament is we're in a different dispensation. It's a different administration which God is dealing with mankind that we can look at at a different time. So what are the attributes of God? I'm not going to read the... There's the Westminster Confession of Faith. I have the printout here, but... It's a tremendous statement back in the 1600s that they devised in the Anglican Church uh, to describe who God is. You can look it up on the internet and read it, but it's, it's, it's very good. The attributes I got of, God, of uh, God that I've listed out here, and again, we can build on it, we can take away, we can do as, lots of fun stuff with it because we're trying to understand who God is. But God is holy. God is spirit. God is life. God is self-existent and free. God is infinite and eternal. God is immutable or changeless. God is truth. God is love. God is good. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is righteous or just. And God is sovereign. And within those, there's characteristics of God that are carried out. But these reveal to us who God is. They give a finite mind and understanding of the infinite. First one we want to look at, and, and we're going to get through it as many as we can, and then we'll take it up next time I speak, but God is holy. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And as you read in Isaiah chapter 40 here, in verse 25, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Who is God's opposite? Who is like God? God is holy. He is unique. He says, I am who I am. There's none like him. There's none that can compare to him. There's none that can measure up to him. He has no opposites. He has no equals. He is holy, which means separate from all of creation and every created thing and everything that exists. God is unique in his own person and who he is, and the very nature, and some have even taken the holiness of God and said it's not, only, it's not merely just an attribute, but it's, who, it's all the attributes combined and placed in the holiness of God that makes him holy. All the uniqueness in the attributes of God is what makes him holy. He's the only one that, 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 that's omniscient. He's the only one that's omnipotent. He's the only one that possesses life within himself. He's the only one that is self-existent and free. But God is holy. There's none like him. He is unique. 
There's a negative side to the holiness of God. And I don't mean negative isn't bad, but there's a negative that is absent in the holiness of God. And that is that there's no sin, no unrighteousness, no defilement within the attribute of God and his holiness. There's nothing impure in God. Everything within him is good. It says that God is light and in him is no darkness. He's absent and void of any sin, any dealing with it, any unrighteousness at all. He doesn't take pleasure in it. He has no dealings with it. And God cannot be tempted, nor is he going to place sin within our lives. The positive side that makes him holy is all the character, characteristics of him that he is unique and that I just mentioned, all the attributes. God is a holy God, and he's called us to be holy just like he is, to be different, to be distinct in this world in which we walk in. You see, God is different, and he expects his people to be different, different from the world, not different from him, but to be like him. Now, if you were to take God, who, who is, we know there's no one in the sense we say is like him, but who is like him? You and I. This is an amazing thing, is that he created us, what? In the image of God. He created us after his own likeness. This is an amazing thing. There's no one like him, so he takes us, not animals, not insects, not angels, but he takes us and he creates us after his own image that we bear. And he puts that mark within us. Let us make man after our own image. Let us make man after our likeness so that we can commune and live with the holy, righteous God. So you see, within the attributes of God, because he made us like him, we begin to bear out those attributes, not in their fullest, but in areas of our life that represent God to this world, that we're holy. That doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden omniscient, but we can think. God gave us the ability to reason, to uh, be logical, to think stuff out, to comprehend. This is an amazing thing, to make choices. Animals don't make choices. The only choice the animal makes is that what feeds its flesh. And uh, a meat eater, you put that meat before them and they're going to eat it. They, they don't care. They don't, they, they don't understand the cost that it's taken another, another animal's life. They just they do it. But we can reason and we can use logic and we can think because God's made us this way after his own image. This is why he loves us so much. He loves us because we're unique. Because he created us after his image and made us. That he wants to look down on us and see each one of us to bear the image of his son. That he looks down on earth and sees every Christian. He should see Jesus Christ walking amongst this earth in each one of us. Representing the Savior. That people look down and say, I can see Jesus in your life. The biggest compliment that... Uh, Anyone ever paid to the disciples is that, who are these ignorant men, but these men have been with Jesus. How can we reason with them? You spend time with God, carefully you start acting like God. And that's what we want to happen in our life, to bear the glory and the image of God and to look at that and let it transform our lives. So the New Testament's different than the Old Testament. The New Testament, he's put a divine nature within us. He's no longer placed a lie over us, but he's come within and is changing us from inside out that we bear 
the same mind and attributes of God. It's an amazing thing. He's changed us. And he's in the process of changing us so that we don't love because we're told to love. We're loved because that's the very nature of who we are. Because we're children of God and God wants us to do that. And we do like the Lord Jesus would do. That he only does what his Father does. Whatever I see the Father do, that's what I do. And that's what we need to do as Christians. So there's the holiness of God. God is spirit. God does not have flesh and blood like we have. does not have material. He's a spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh and blood. He took on humanity. But God is a spirit. And in John chapter 4, verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In John 1.18 and 5.37 it says, God is invisible. No man has seen God at any time. But the Lord Jesus Christ has come to reveal to us who God is. Therefore, if we come to worship God, there's two things that he puts here. He must worship in spirit and in truth. If we come to worship God in the flesh, it's not going to work. If we come and we, we devoid ourselves of truth, that's not going to work as well. You must come and our spirit communes with the spirit of God. This talks about in 1 Corinthians there. How can you know um, the deep things of God unless the spirit reveals it to you? And he has given us his spirit. His spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within us and it communicates with our spirit to teach us, yes, the deep things of God. To give us the ability to understand and comprehend who God is. So God is a spirit. And we come and we worship him in spirit and in truth. God is life. John chapter 5 verse 26. For as the father has life in himself. So he has granted the son to have life in himself. Only God has the ability to create life. It says of the creation of man that God breathed life into him. Life comes from God. Every living thing on this earth, whether it's animals or insects or, or angels or whatever it might be, God created and gave it life. That life comes from him. It's part of who he is, and he's able to give it. But there's a deeper part of life, not just the mere existence of man, not just the mere understanding that we're alive, but he has come to give what? Eternal life, abundant life. See, God not only gives us life so that we exist, but he teaches us what life is all about. He gives us an understanding and a purpose in life that we live for God and God alone. That only through God and the quality of life that he sheds abroad to us is the life in which is worth living. God is life. And that eternal life we have, we possess right now, is not just a duration of time in which we're going to be alive for all of eternity exists, but it's the quality of life that we're going to be with God for all of eternity and that we're with God right now. It's often been said, is, is, if you don't enjoy coming to church, if you don't enjoy the breaking of bread, if you don't enjoy the believers, you're going to have a rough time throughout eternity. Because we're all going to be there. And eternity is going to be about God. And it's going to be about his son, Jesus Christ. And I tell you, eternal life is in our present possession right now. To enjoy God. 
and to live for him and to have purpose. This life is in God alone. And as we've already mentioned, the absence of God is eternal death. Death is separation. And we speak of death in the physical form. It's separation from our soul or spirit from the body. But eternal death is separation from God for all of eternity. There's nothing worse than being apart from God. Everything you know that's good comes from God. But the place of torment and judgment is going to be absent and void of the goodness of God. But right now, those that are Christians, those that have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to enjoy God right now, day in and day out, and walk with him. God is self-existent and free. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God is free of all his creation of any living thing. God can exist without us. It might be news to some of us, but he can exist and he's not depending upon us. But he loves us and he does want us. The question is, there is of need. He is self-existent. He doesn't seek counsel. When we, obviously, in, in the assembly here, when we have the men's business meeting and say we're going to go and, and we had the water damage over there, whoever heads it up gathers together the men and then he seeks the counsel of what to do. What are we going to do with the electrical? What are we going to do with the cabinetry? What are we going to do with the flooring? What are we in all of our finite minds come together and say, well, we can do this. There's option one, two, three. God created the heavens and the earth. Who did he consult? No one. That's the argument that Isaiah is using here. He consults no one. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows all things. God is self-existent. And he's free to sovereignly choose and do what he so pleases and wants to do. That's God. So when God chooses to reveal himself in a manner and puts himself and says, this is what I reveal in myself, then God has just, in a sense, you can say, limited himself to that attribute and to that action of what his word declares. God is allowed to be God, and that's who he is. But within his self-existence and, and freedom, he is always true to himself and he cannot deny himself. This is interesting stuff. This is, this is beyond my mind. I just regurgitate what I've thought up and I really can't explain a lot of this stuff because it just goes over my head. But it's amazing. It's truly amazing how great our God is. Our God is infinite and eternal. He's infinite and eternal. Psalms 145.3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. In Isaiah here we read, His understanding is unsearchable. We, we, we can't fully search out and comprehend God because he's so great. 
He's limitless. Infinite means there's no boundaries. There's no limits to who he is. There's no limits to his existence in the sense that he is eternal. Before the heavens and the earth were formed, before anything, he's always existed. And he will always exist because he is eternal. There is no beginning. There is no end. There's no limit to his knowledge, to his power. God is immortal. God is truly amazing. And we come with our finite minds. And the finite means we're limited. We come with, with, with these small brains within our head that are trying to comprehend the greatness of God. He's not limited in his knowledge one bit. You can look within the creation itself in the marvelous workings of it that God, without a, a, a breaking a sweat, can make all the natural realms work together so that they support one another. So that the sun provides the exact nutrients for the plants and the plants put off oxygen and, and all where you can go and, and everything works together beautifully. He didn't break a sweat. He just, our bodies work together. These are uh, amazing bodies and how water does not get absorbed but we sweat and let water out. Our eyes are amazing. Just to be able to see and get into the complexity of the, everything about us, yet God doesn't break a sweat when he designed us. Not even a, a, it's to its perfection. We heal ourselves. Cut yourself. It heals. It's an amazing body. And everything God does is beyond our understanding and our comprehension. But we just stand in awe. And, and Bill McDonald gave the example. How many, you know, we can look up with our eyes and see billions of stars. Is that enough? Yet God shows how big he is. And within our Milky Way system, it's huge. But yet there's within there, past that, more systems after that. In a higher number than we can even come up with of stars. Why? Because God wants to show how great and how awesome he is. And then he turns around and says, I name each star by name. We can't even come up with unique names and name our children without copying one another. <laughs> that God would have a different name for every star. He's amazing, and you just let your mind go and, and, and understand how great God is. We're going to stop there, that God is infinite and eternal. And we'll, we'll pick up the rest of them uh, next time I speak, but um, there, there's so much more. We've only begun to scratch the surface of how great God is, how vast he is, how big he is. Yet I want to leave you with this. God's love is so great for us that how big he is that the creator of the universe would take on flesh and blood. That Jesus, the son of God, would come down and be born in a manger and take on humanity for you and I. It's easy to comprehend how, I mean, in the sense that God is so big because God is God. But I'll tell you what struggles. Why would God come down, take on flesh and blood, become a human being, and go to the cross of Calvary for you and I? 
Does God take his attributes seriously? Absolutely he does, because he had to fulfill his attributes. And the only way to fulfill his attributes and save us is that the son had to go and die. That thou, my God, should die for me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am he who was dead and yet alive forevermore. My God should die for me. This doesn't move you. There's something wrong. That God would love you so much that he would send his only begotten son to die for you. If you're not saved this morning, if you don't know God as your personal savior, that you've never accepted Jesus Christ, that he died on that cross for your sins, you're separated from God. And you're not going to enjoy the goodness of God for the rest of eternity. You will exist forever, but you will exist and experience the righteous judgment of God. Where the fire doesn't stop burning. Where the absence of God is there. God is real. God is true. We're going to get into that eventually. That is an attribute of God that he is true and he doesn't lie. God is real and he maintains himself within his attributes and he knows what they are and he functions within them without even breaking a sweat. Or we sit here and it takes us all of our life to try to grasp our minds onto it. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we just come before you. God, our, our minds cannot even begin to comprehend who you are. Your greatness, your vastness, your limitless, your power. Everything about you, God, is great. But you love us. And you would send your son to die on the cross for our sins. Father, if there's anyone here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, speak to them, Father. Draw them unto yourself. Reveal to them that the Jesus loved them and died on the cross for their sins. And that they can have eternal life right now they repent of their sins and accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they will be reconciled back to you. Father, we just pray if there's any that are not saved here that they will come forth and do so. Father, the rest of us, captivate our minds, captivate our hearts, give us a zeal and a passion to know you deeper and more intimate, to search out from the scriptures of who you are, O oh God. You want us to know who you are and you're willing to reveal yourself to us more and more every day. Help us, Lord. Help us live for you. Help us take on the attributes of God and resemble your son, Lord Jesus Christ. Conform us to the image of Christ. And let us live holy lives on this earth as you are holy. In the name of Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.